Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. That's the sound of a funeral. My stepfather Guy Wolf's funeral. When he died in February, the people who helped him in his final days and who helped us arrange his services made me want to do a whole show about the anatomy of his death. So today, you'll meet members of the hospice team. There's a lot of unnecessary suffering. We teach people how to live, but we don't teach them how to die like a lot of the rest of the world. You'll hear from the owner of the funeral home. Humor is, it's important. If you can have a light, airy moment through this awful adventure, let's enjoy it. And you'll hear what it means to sing for funerals from the cantor from his mass. I'm always lifted by funerals, or saddened, but also lifted up. You'll hear reflections from his wife, my mom, and you'll even hear a little story from Guy, too. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious, after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. How do I start this show? Guy Walker Wolf III died on February 13th, 2021. He was 77 years old, and there are many ways to describe Guy, but I'd say we who knew him would all agree that he could be described as the captain of his own ship. And he was my stepfather. I've known him since I was 11. For as long as I knew him, I knew his death was imminent. I mean, yeah, death is imminent for all of us, but he'd had a triple bypass and a bunch of health complications that always seemed to come and go and come back again. I always worried that he was one bad day away from his last day. But even though I worried, it would be almost 30 more years from the day I met him until that last day came. And when that last day came, and the days following, I was compelled by the people who were a part of guiding us through it. So today, I'm going to introduce you to the people who helped Guy die, and who helped us celebrate him. From the hospice workers who came to the house, to the funeral home director, to the cantor who sang at his mass. And at the end of the show, you'll hear a little something from Guy. But first, I want you to meet my mom, Pamela morrison Wolf. I sat down with her in our family home in Farmington this week. I asked her to talk about Guy's health issues and how they decided to use in-home hospice care. Uh, Guy had a a long history of um, medical conditions. He had congestive heart failure. He had end-stage kidney failure. He had been, according to one of his doctors, in a palliative care state for years. But still, he he resisted it. And uh, above all, he didn't want to be a burden to me. I said, I'm not. <laughs> You're God's gift to me. Knock off the burden stuff. But um, there was a point a few weeks before he did die where he just looked at me and said very, very quietly, I can't go on living like this. And I had promised to honor his choice. So they connected us with the uh, Visiting Nurse Association, and uh, they took care of us. When he said, I can't go on living like this, 
What was living like this? He was becoming um, weak. I mean, you know, Guy is the most independent, decisive, decision-making <laughs> human being. That's putting it lightly, yeah. That's putting it lightly, yes. <clears throat> um, he, he, the idea of being dependent horrified him. And I think, yes, he was also worried. It was COVID. We had nobody else to talk to, no place we could go. Nobody could come visit us. He, he was feeling stressed, yes. But he was getting physically weaker. Uh, very often, see his shoes over there. Yeah. I, I'd take his shoes on, on and off for him <clears throat> and um, tie them for him and help with all of his dressing, undressing. And uh, yeah, very, very weak towards the end. And um, that was not who he was. So there. Couldn't go on like that anymore. When hospice began in earnest, mm-hmm. how did that feel for you? Were you relieved? Was it stressful? Some other stuff? A combination. Um, I, I wanted him taken care of by a professional, um, but I knew what the end result was going to be. We did have one slight um, difference with them. They wanted to bring in a hospital bed, and we said no. No, no, no. We are sleeping together, and we won't fit into a hospital bed. So the children all were wonderful. They brought down a queen-size mattress from upstairs and set us up, and hospice or no, (laughs) we were together cuddling. So, In this room? Yes, in this room. As as it goes, it was a good way to go, together. That was my mom. Pamela Morrison-Wolf. You'll hear more from her throughout the show. Being with her at the house throughout the process of his death, I got to meet the hospice nurses who would come to help. And even though I'm married to a nurse, it still blew my mind how they walked this tightrope. They have to get the medical job done, right? And they have to respectfully care for these people who are raw and delicate and experiencing some of the most painful moments of their lives at the end of their loved one's life. So what does it take to do that kind of work? The three members of the hospice team from Farmington Valley Visiting Nurse Association, whom I met in those hard days, joined me to talk about what they saw and what they did throughout Guy's death and what this job does for them. I asked Mary Chakowsky, who is his nurse case manager, why, of all the fields of nursing she could have gone into, she chose hospice. I see it as an honor. It's a huge responsibility. Making sure the patient's remaining days are really comfortable and peaceful as possible, it's a challenge I welcome. It's kind of exciting in that way because you that's it. They need you for whatever time they have left. Sometimes the journey needs thinking outside the box. I love to do that too. It really makes me smile when I can figure out a tricky solution. I had a a recent patient who was originally on a skilled nursing unit because of a complicated treatment. And I, I said, hey, why can't this guy move over to his wife's memory unit? And when we did that, it really made a big difference. So I I like that kind of thing, you know, trying to be creative and think outside the box. Speaking of getting creative, Guy was a pretty stubborn guy in a lot of ways, and it took a fair amount of convincing 
for him to take the morphine, uh, even though he was uncomfortable, right? So I wonder if you get that a lot, like, and what do you do when that happens? That is a huge challenge. A lot of people come to hospice with misconceptions and you have to really listen. You have to hear um, what's going on and, and do your interview skills. Um, we pull in the medical director when we need to. Sometimes when you have multiple people saying the same thing, it suddenly reassures the patient. Sometimes it's a family member you have to win over. So, you know, that's a tricky one. And when people really understand the benefits of it and give it a try, it makes a huge difference. Our medical director on one particularly challenging case, you know, said to me, Mary, just go and sit with her, hold her hand, and she will be fine. And we did that, and she was great for uh, a week. And then she sort of rethought everything. But you know what? You just reassess and you move on and come up with a new plan. When Guy died, um, I was honored to be there with him and, and many members of our family. And um, it was sort of like he just fell asleep and stopped breathing. Um, so I wonder, regardless of what physical ailment leads a person into hospice, are most deaths, functionally speaking, the same? Sadly, they're not. Um, if you can lay the groundwork and help families with the end-of-life comfort medications, you can address most issues, but everyone has a unique set of symptoms they come to the table with. So you do have to understand what is causing the patient's uh, end-of-life process and be prepared. Do you ever... I mean, this seems like an obvious question, but do you ever get attached? Oh, of course. Um, I, I have one couple that I helped on their journey separately, but together in a way. The family had really been struggling for the wife uh, on what to do and how to proceed. And it ended up that the husband, who had some mild dementia, really wanted hospice for his wife. And he made his wishes known. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> um, it, that was a really unique case. Um, so he ended up having a stroke. It was a sudden downturn. I was in the home. And the medical director was wonderful. We were able to get him on hospice in an afternoon. The husband passed fairly quickly. Um, it was peaceful. Everything was in place. So it was, that was a particularly um, to the heart situation. I was there when the husband passed. He was actually literally in my arms because we were trying to reposition him. What do you do? How, how do you take care of yourself after something like that? Well, I remember sending a text to my boss saying, okay, he fell he, he passed peacefully in my arms. And so we definitely reach out to our team. We have an amazing team, you know, the interdisciplinary hospice group. Um, we meet every two weeks at the end of our uh, meetings. We have a candle and everybody comes together and we say a prayer for that person that passed. So there's that. Uh, my family's wonderful. 
Thank goodness my husband's been home all year because it's been a little busy for us as clinicians. And he's stepped in. He's been there every step. Well, thank you for bringing your whole heart to this conversation. Mary Chakowsky, nurse case manager at Farmington Valley Visiting Nurse Association. I want to go to Tanya Brown. She's a registered nurse case manager at the VNA. Tanya, when we met after Guy died, you spent a lot of time at our kitchen table surrounded by lots and lots and so many bottles of medications. Talk about what you were there to do at our kitchen table. Anytime we come out for a pronouncement piece, we it is our responsibility to destroy any medications that came to the home. So I always ask the family if they have anything extra that, you know, maybe wasn't a medication we had brought in, but it was something that the family wanted to get rid of. So your mom had brought out lots of different medications. Um, not quite sure where they all came from, but there was lots of them. So we did what we do and we got rid of everything we could. I asked her about vitamins and stuff in case anybody else wanted to keep them if they used them. But she said, toss everything. So we were, you know, pretty good and quick about it and was able to get rid of everything for her and clean up some space in the house. Now, you didn't just like toss it in a bag. You emptied every container. It looked like you were inventorying them from what I could tell. And they ended up in a big Ziploc bag that looked like mud. What was in there besides the medication? <laughs> so, um... For that particular day, I did have a bag of plain kitty litter, plain kitty litter mixed with some warm water. And those medications do mash up and dissolve within that warm water in the kitty litter. And we just really want to make sure that we're not polluting any, you know, town sewer and we're not making it, you know, edible for anybody picking through garbage or whatnot. So we do have to destroy it in some type of um, waste bag, so to say. Some companies use um, biodegradable med packs. They're very expensive, and the kitty litter does the exact same thing. Um, so as long as the medications aren't retrievable, it's good. Well, thanks. Tanya Brown, registered nurse case manager at the Farmington Valley Visiting Nurse Association. I want to turn to Trung Lee, uh, hospice nurse at the Farmington Valley VNA. With all of your skills, you could have been a nurse anywhere. So why did you choose hospice? Nursing is actually my second career. I used to be a biologist and uh, never did I think I would become a nurse because, you know, doing biology, I just had my bacteria to talk to. So I wasn't really a people person. By chance, a graduate student came through the lab and talked about nursing. And, you know, I, I thought about it and eventually went into nursing and I'm glad I did because it made me a people person, which kind of helps me with the hospice part and that, you know, I have to learn to communicate, be outgoing and, you know, fight for my patients. So that helped a lot. And um, so I used to be an ICU nurse. So I've been around a lot of death and dying and trauma and um, a lot of experiences in the ICU. And what I find was there's a lot of unnecessary suffering. Death is a taboo subject with clinicians. I find like in the U.S., we teach people how to live, but we don't teach them how to die like a lot of the rest of the world. So I found like uh, there was no preparedness. There was no death with dignity. A lot of times it was last minute decisions under stress. And I got tired of seeing all the stress and unnecessary suffering by both patients and families. So um, I recently joined the VNA full time and left the hospital hoping to educate 
patients and families about the hospice process and what it means. It's okay, you know, to talk about it and be prepared and you can have a peaceful and comfortable death and, you know, have it be part of life. And, you know, it's funny because after I found out about this meeting, I just happened to come across a clip of Patch Adams. I don't know if you saw that movie when he's in front of the panel. And he, he said that, you know, when you treat the disease, you win some, you lose some. But if you treat the patient, you're always going to win. And fortunately, you know, I believe we do a pretty good job of treating the patient and the families. And that's why we get the recognition that we do, because I think we do a good job with that. One of the things that you did was change him um, into some new clothes. Uh, so when the funeral home came and took him away, he, he would have a sort of a new base layer of clothes. And I remember uh, being really struck by your kindness with him. In fact, you surprised me that even though he was dead, you spoke to him. You said, we're here to help Mr. Wolf. We'll take good care of you, Mr. Wolf. And that was powerful to me in two ways. Um, One, when I was 11, when I first met him, I called him Mr. Wolf, (laughs) you know, and then I called him Senior Lobo. (laughs) But um, it was kind of wild to hear Mr. Wolf again in that house and in this context and with such warmth. Um, And second, I thought, wow, this man is addressing my stepfather who's dead as if he could hear him. Why did you do that? I, I believe there's something after death. It's not just an end that the person can hear no matter where he is, he can hear. So that's why I always encourage the family even though the patient doesn't respond, just keep talking because they can hear. So, you know, express your feelings, let it out, talk to him. So, you know, I talk to him like any other Joe, you know, just whether or not they hear me, that's fine. I'll still talk to them like they're there and explain what I'm doing because, you know, that's something that they need to know and the family needs to know. So the more information you guys have and to see what I'm doing, the you know, the easier it is for you guys. So I, I always treat patients the same and you know, whether they're moving or not, they can still hear me. And I, I believe that. So with all the experience you have in hospitals and all the death you know, you've talked about seeing, what does this do for you? At the end of the day, what does this do for you? Um, you know, I've, depending on how you look at it, fortunately, or unfortunately, I've been surrounded by death all through life growing up. So death doesn't bother me. I feel actually very comfortable with end of life conversations and having been in the ICU and seeing all the struggles from the patients and families from miscommunication and uh, miseducation about uh, prognosis and recovery, it's just boiled over to frustration. So I just wanna try to educate the patients and families, show them that death is not a taboo subject, that it's okay to grieve, it's okay to talk about, it's okay to, express your feelings and be angry, be sad. And that I, you know, I just feel like there's just so much unnecessary pain and suffering that goes in the hospital that I, I got to do what I can to give people back their dignity, especially in this day and age. I know I've, I've seen a lot of COVID deaths, you know, people dying alone, having to hold their hand, FaceTime, you know, watching them ask for their family and not get it. And it's, it's frustrating. You know, I had COVID myself, so I know what they're, what they're going through to be alone and isolated and not know if you're going to see, wake up and see somebody the next day. It's, it's very heartbreaking. So, you know, if they can be surrounded 
by their loved ones in a familiar environment with a, you know, go with a smile on their face and to look around and see everyone else with a smile because they know that's what everyone wanted and everyone's at peace and mission accomplished. So that's why I, I choose hospice. I, I just, I'm comfortable with end of life and sometimes more than, <laughs> than life. But uh, if you ask me and some other people, my view on end of life is a little bit different than others, but overall we have the same goal. That was Trung Lee, Tanya Brown, and Mary Chukowski of Farmington Valley Visiting Nurse Association. When we get back. Talk about it. Because something to acknowledge a life well lived is extremely important. Meet the funeral home director who helped us with arrangements and hear more from my mom on how she navigated all the choices she'd have to make. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. My stepfather, Guy Wolf, died last month. Today's show was inspired by the people who helped him during his death and who helped us, his family, remember and celebrate him. After he died at home, thanks to the help of nurses from hospice, we turned to a Hearn funeral home. I asked my mom, Pamela Morrison Wolf, how she and Guy decided what to do with his body and how she navigated that process with the funeral home. There was a point earlier where he was extremely very ill and they thought he might um, die. And uh, he insisted that he thought we should both be cremated. Okay, I don't care. Fine, cremate. But when it came actual time, he said, no, I don't want that. I want my body. And then he said, and when when I'm to die, the funeral plot will accommodate both of us. We'll be together forever. What do you think of that? I thought that was the most romantic. (laughs) So that is what he said towards the end, and I honored it. After he died, we took a visit. It was me, you, and and my brother Michael, and um, took a visit to the funeral home (laughs) and sat down with Frank Ahern and um, had to figure out, you know, what kind of coffin and what kind of vault and whether or not to embalm guy and uh, what other details we wanted in the funeral. It struck me when I was sitting next to you that you, you had a price list in your lap for your husband's funeral. And um, what was going on in your head when you were looking at that and making those choices? I, um, <clears throat> I wanted the funeral to be a celebration of guy and Frankly, I wasn't even looking at the money figures. (laughs) Although it did occur to me a bit later on that if if Guy had known how much it was going to cost, he would have gone the ashes route. (laughs) But it was beautiful. The coffin was beautiful. um, And uh, it was a celebration. Plus, you know, never mind the conflicts about the the expense. I was in charge now. (laughs) Which is a, a new feeling. A feeling maybe you would give up mm, for anything. Correct. Will you talk about what you gave to Frank at the funeral <laughs> home that you wanted to be put into Guy's hand and oh, kept yes. there? Oh, yes. This was a big one. Um, when Guy was in the, the United States Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point and was about to go for his sea year abroad, his girlfriend at the time gave him a St. Christopher medal. 
Keep in mind the guy's not Catholic and <clears throat> doesn't do saints, but anyway. What's the, what's the significance behind that saint? The patron saint of travelers. Perfect. So, but he kept it. He kept it with him, and he's always had it. When Paul went to Spain, your brother, the musician, he gave the medal to Paul. And Paul was very touched, and he kept it. And then at the time of the funeral, Paul brought it back from Spain so Guy could have it with him for his last travel. I, I love that. And that's what we did. Since it would be almost a week between his death and the viewing and, and the funeral, <clears throat> you had his body embalmed. What was it like when you saw him for the first time? Not at all what I expected. I had um, been concerned that I would just lose it, want to throw myself in the coffin so I could you know, hold on to him. But the reality was, yes, he was impeccably groomed, wearing an excellent suit, but it wasn't Guy. He wasn't there. No, the, 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 the passion, the courage, the intelligence, the... Wit. Wit. <laughs> Very sharp wit. Yes. Um, and that really gave me a calmer sense of peace. Hmm. So not what I expected. Will you tell me about the plot you picked out and what that was like for you? <laughs> oh, yes. The plot is overlooking the river. Here, we're back to the sailor. <laughs> and it's just a beautiful, beautiful spot. Uh, very protected. And again, with the river, uh, I just thought that he would like it. Good place for him. And, and for me, because it's going to be mine too. So uh, it felt right. Have you been back to visit him? No, he's not there. <laughs> but he's here. I talked to him all day. It's... <laughs> Yeah, there are so many visual reminders of him here that uh, are positive in the times we had together. Yeah. When he talks back to you, <laughs> what kind of mood is he in? Uh, sometimes he's rolling his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that. Oh, That's no, shocking no, no. to me. Classic Guy Wolf, yes. That was my mom, Pamela Morrison Wolf. Frank Ahern is the president of Ahern Funeral Homes. It's been a family business since 1886, starting in Hartford and in the 70s, adding another location in Unionville. I visited him at his beautiful historical building in Hartford this week, and I asked him when people first get in touch about needing his services, what are some of the most commonly asked questions or blanks he has to fill in? Well, first of all, when someone comes in that I don't know or the staff doesn't know, we'd like to sit for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes or more, depending upon um, the familiarity with the family. Uh, just get a little bit of a background on the family, what they're comfortable, uh, certainly the individual that we'd be serving. It's more of a relationship building, you know, without going into the nitty gritty of business, just to make it easy for the people coming in. Because it's not a very nice time. Nine times out of 10, a lot of t uh, people are like the deer in the headlights. And you can't blame them for that because it's, it's an unknown situation. When someone walks through the door, you may have spoken to them on the phone or Zoom or something. So you sure. have a sense of what they're like. Yeah. Are you ever surprised by the way they act or the way they respond to you or the way they interact because they're in this shell-shocked state, regardless of whether or not the death well, was expected? Kion, let me just say this now. 
for me to be shocked or surprised. I've been in the profession a good long time. Have I seen it all? Have I done it all? Maybe not yet, but I'm working towards it. Um, we have to be very receptive to different personalities, attitudes, beliefs, no belief. We can't be, and we are not, and we never will be judgmental. Can't. Can't do it. Sit, listen, absorb what they have to say, find some common ground, and proceed nicely. My mom gave a St. Christopher medallion to you to put in Guy's hand. I wonder how often you get requests like that, and what kind of things in that realm do people most often request? Well, families that have a connection with certain like the golfers, there's always a golf ball, tee, or a club, you know. We've seen anything and everything uh, from sets of keys, a dollar bill, uh, quarters, things like that. It's nice to be able to do that. And you, you, you never refuse a family for something personal because it's all about the personal touch. And it's important to have that connection, little something. You know, especially from the grandchildren. You know, we see crayon drawings that are priceless to the kids and to the grandparents. Going right along. Magnificent. And they just stay in the casket. They stay right there. Yes, ma'am. Nothing is moved. Nothing is moved. The family asked them to be placed. And I like to make sure that if they're not watching one of my staff or myself place it, there's always a family member staying there to close the casket that everything will stay. Everything. Very important. Very important. How often do you see people struggle with choosing to go ahead with what they want in a funeral if it's different than what the person who died may have wanted? Well, pre-planning is, is a big part. People are asking a lot of questions. People are calling, they're emailing, they're doing this, they're doing that. Uh, I firmly believe in the power of pre-planning and at a certain age, pre-paying. Pre-planning, let's, let's talk about that first. Uh, very important for personal wishes and it's very disheartening to have a plan and then the people come in and change it from what's written. They might bring the wishes of the individual and they say, well, Frank, uh, we're not going to do this. That, that's, that's not going to, now that's not going to make any sense. Well, let's rethink this a little bit. This is what Uncle Harry wanted. And I think we should stick pretty close to the plan. Now, if it's prepaid, Guyon, then absolutely mandatorily, it must be followed. So if you want to make sure that you're going to have oh, the funeral please, that please, you want, prepay. Please, please, take the time, write it down, make sure somebody knows about it. Find people you trust, your attorney, family members, please. I can't say enough about that. Very important. One of the things that really struck me about our time together yes. after Guy died was how funny you are. 
but not in a disrespectful way. It's a dry kind of humor. And I wonder if if you could talk about the use of humor in well, your job. I think it's very, very important to put a little different spin on things. Do I want to go through my entire career and my life with the doom, the gloom, the sadness of funerals and things like that? Or can we at least lighten the moment with a little bit of dry Irish humor? I found that uh, it makes people a little bit more at ease. And um, humor is, you know, it's important because it can become devastating. And if you can have a light, airy moment through this awful adventure, let's enjoy it. Now, you're an Irish guy. Oh, uh, 100%. Working in the death industry. There's quite a few of us in the death industry throughout the country. Why do you think that is? What is it about the Irish? Well, we Irish. We, well, the humor is in our DNA. But the thing is, if we're having a humorous chat at a funeral or remembering Pat or Mike or Mary or Claire, you know, if we're being humorous, we're just letting everybody know that we're really not sad. And that's not the case. No, maybe we use the humor as a cover, just putting it out there for a little conversation. Probably I would be uh, guilty of that from day one. Likewise. From day one, you know. After people listen to this segment with you, what are some things that you're hoping that people really take to heart when they consider what they want done with themselves after they die? I think it's very important that this small little segment gets out to people and it might touch a few people and say, I really should think more about this. I should think more about what I can do to ease the questions, the answers, the responsibilities putting on my children, my grandchildren. It's very important to plan and talk about it. Talk about it. Because a funeral or a celebration, a memorial, a family gathering, a public gathering, something to acknowledge a life well lived is extremely important. And I'm not putting a dollar value on any of that. Get a group of people together, get somebody to say a few prayers, sing some songs, let the doves fly, let the balloons pop, do whatever you are comfortable doing, but do something to remember the people that matter to us. We need to do it. We need to celebrate our lives, live life to the fullest, enjoy ourselves, but when something happens to one of us, remember us as we lived. Very important. Thank you, Frank, for talking with me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for coming to Hartford. You only had to come a couple of blocks. Yeah, that's true. A short commute. That's all right. It'll Any... be a short commute after I die, too. Listen, live. Live. My father used to say, folks, there's plenty of time for dying. Let's live. Smart man. Tough to work for, but a smart man. 
That was Frank Ahern, president of Ahern Funeral Homes in Hartford and Unionville, Connecticut. After the break. I'm always lifted by funerals. Or saddened, but also lifted up. Hear from the cantor who sang at Guy's funeral and a few more reflections from my mom. And at the end of the show, you'll hear a little story from Guy Wolf himself. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and that is the voice of Pam Frigo Johnson singing All Are Welcome at St. Patrick's St. Anthony Church in Hartford at the beginning of the funeral mass for my stepfather, Guy Walker Wolf III. He died last month. During the show, you're meeting the people who helped him die and the people who helped us celebrate him. You'll meet Pam in a minute, but first, my mom, Pamela Morrison Wolf, told me how they chose the church and the beautiful music we'd hear during his funeral mass. We're back to the idea of a celebration. And uh, yes, we had the funeral at St. Patrick's St. Anthony. I did not know, as we got into more serious health conditions, um, where a guy wanted his funeral or what he wanted. Um, At one point when he was very near death, I said, darn it, come on, you want me to to, to perhaps, I've met the pastor of the Congregational Church, you want me to set something up there? And I loved his response. He said, no, I know the friars and the friars know me. And I'm not going to be there, so it's for you anyway. So yeah, have it at St. Patrick's St. Anthony. It was really the most appropriate place for the funeral. And uh, I wanted things that were, were celebratory. For example, Amazing Grace. He loved that song. How can I not have that? All are welcome. Well, when you think about it, we're in a Catholic church, but our relatives and our family, we have Protestants, we have Jewish members, friends all over. I, I want every person who watched it streamlined or who showed up at the, at the building to know that they were welcome and I was grateful to have them join us. Um, on Eagle's Wings, that's so positive. And then that rousing, joyful, joyful, we adore you. He, he would have loved it. And you adored him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was my mom, Pamela morrison Wolf. Pam Frigo Johnson has been a cantor at St. Patrick's St. Anthony Church in Hartford since 1997, and I was wondering how she saw her job. I know there are so many ways that people pray, so for her, is this work prayer? Oh, absolutely a form of prayer. It it is my prayer. You know, like Guy's funeral, I know that crowd would have been singing. You know, there are certainly funerals that come to our church where nobody opens their mouth, you know, but those people, they were so connected to this community, right? All of those voices would have been heard. I know Pamela would have been singing. They all would have been singing. And it hurts my heart 
to know that that can't happen. I, I think at one of the 1145 masses, which we now have where people you know, can't, still can't sing, and we did, uh, the final hymn was, I'm marching in the light of God. I said, look, I know you can't sing, but let's clap together. And I, this is, you know, it's mostly a, a very New Englandy kind of church. You know, <laughs> this moving and clapping thing, you know, they got to get, it's not two and four, two and four. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought, is this going to work? I saw everybody in that church clap. So I know that in their hearts, they are still waiting to just burst out in song at the end of this COVID. As I know they would have done at Guy's funeral, I feel like they need to have another celebration of his life where we can all just sing together, you know. <laughs> I was struck that St. Patrick's St. Anthony had like a menu of readings and songs for people to choose from for funeral masses. So what are songs that you really love to sing for funerals? You know, there are some that are off the menu that and, and I would say if, if I'm chatting with somebody, you know, don't be afraid to go off menu. For instance, going home, going home, going home. I'm just going home. I, you know, that's a that's one that comes up that people ask for and they know that. But you know what moves me the most is and this is often not for Catholic funerals because a lot of Catholic churches don't don't allow you to go too much off book. You know, it has to be sacred because you are in a sacred space. Although there have been times where it's sort of as a song of remembrance. So it's a little off book. So it's a song that has meant something to the deceased. So I'm going to confess that I've actually sung New York, New York. And when you see the people respond to that, so this might be a, a visiting congregation this is what this guy was about. He loved New York City. He lived New York City. And this is the song he wanted. He's almost brought to life right there. It's so amazing to see that. So it's not about what my favorite is. It's about what works for the family. What connects them? Because for me, at funerals, and I get emotional about this, when I listen to the love, that the people had and still have for this person, that renews my faith every time. Like, yes, this life goes on. It goes on in each of our hearts. I see the, the people that have said goodbyes to their loved ones of all ages, of all ages, that there is something after. Every time it renews my faith. This, this can't be the end right? This is not the end. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always lifted by funerals. We're saddened, but also lifted up. That was Pam Frigo Johnson singing Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee at the end of Guy's funeral. She's a cantor with St. Patrick's St. Anthony Church in Hartford. I wanted my mom to have one last word about all this. As a new widow, she's learning a lot and feeling a lot. And 
I wanted to know what advice she has for those of us who may someday be in her shoes. I would advise them to to try to have a chat with their significant others long before the time is needed, because it's perhaps easier to make a rational decision at that time. And then if the person, well, of course, remember, Guy completely changed his mind on the cremation versus burial. But on the other hand, the fact that we had discussed it, I think, perhaps gave him an opening to speak further. But um, just to get an idea of what the person himself or herself would want. And if not, then then you could give it some thought to, to do it. But uh, bottom line, it's... Um, in a spirit, to find the spirit. And again, with guys, I wanted a celebration. I wanted it to be joyful. Um, you know, in many ways, he was released from, you know, an impending illness that left him uh, so so stifled, so unlike himself. And I miss him, but um, God, I miss him. <clears throat> but I am happy for him. And I talk to him every day, all the time. What do you think he would say about how everything went, all these arrangements and everything? What do you think he'd say? I don't think he would say anything. I think he would smile, like in that picture on the, on the coffee table. I think he would be very, very touched and grateful because it was definitely a joyful, celebratory guy-wolf event. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mom. Thank you. That was Pamela Morrison-Wolf, the loving wife of Guy Wolf and my mom. For this whole episode, we've been talking about Guy, who obviously can't weigh in, so I want you to hear his voice. It's a recording from my storytelling show, The Mouth Off, at the Mark Twain House back in 2016. The theme of the night was how you got that scar. And you need to know that he was chosen for the wild card slot that night. That's where some audience members volunteer to tell a story, and I pick one at random. Now, I will neither confirm nor deny whether or not he was truly picked at random, but I am so glad to have a recording of this story, which I've heard a thousand times, but it never gets old. Here's Guy. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, this is obviously an inside job. Uh, <laughs> I've been uh, trying not to appear here for months, but so uh, now my time has run out. I'm going to tell you a story that goes back a little ways. It starts with me uh, in December of 1963. Uh, some of you folks probably were not around at that time. Uh, I was uh, on a ship in the uh, Atlantic Ocean when I was told that we needed to test fire the line-throwing apparatus. Is there anybody that knows what a line-throwing apparatus is on a ship? No. Okay. Well, a line-throwing, think of, think of a, a shotgun, and what it's done is you fire this rocket with a line attached to a ship that's in distress. So every year the Coast Guard requires that all ships at sea test fire their apparatus to make sure it's working properly. And since I was the junior guy on the ship, showing that I was a young man at that time, 
they gave that job to me. Uh, I had never fired one before, of course. <clears throat> so uh, <laughs> we loaded up, and I aim it out into the water and pull the trigger, and uh, the gun blew up. I'm on my back on the deck, and my first thoughts are, I'm dead. <laughs> okay, I'm dead. And I open my eyes, and I see nothing but blue. So dead is blue. <laughs> dead is blue. And then I see a seagull. And I say, dead is blue with seagulls? <laughs> Probably not. And at that point, they uh, got me up, and they brought the ship into Bermuda, into the harbor, and brought me to a hospital there. The most interesting part of that was they put me off of the ship into a cab. And the cabbie said, well, I have to tell you, the maximum speed limit in Bermuda is 15 miles an hour, and that's as fast as we're going to go to this hospital. They had uh, given me morphine, so I didn't give a damn. <laughs> Take all the time you want. <laughs> and that's my story. That was my stepfather, Guy Walker Wolf III. Right before he died, he opened his eyes. A part of me hopes that he saw blue. And at least one seagull. Audacious is produced by me and Jessica Severin Martinez, who just joined the Audacious team, and this is the first episode she helped with. Welcome aboard, Jessica. Katie Talarski also helped make this show happen. That was broadcast from Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like what it means to be a death doula, relationship advice from people who've been married for over 50 years, and the psychology, history, and contradictions behind many superstitions, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. Now go write down your death plan, will you? And share it with someone you trust. <laughs>